Well, this morning, I would like to invite you to please turn in your Bibles to the book of John. If you have your Bibles, it's the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. The Gospel of John. And I have the great privilege of introducing to you this morning our next sermon series. It's entitled, Life. Life. And let me show you something that we have designed to help introduce this sermon series, not only for you, but for your friends. If you will notice, out on the table, you will see these double business cards that are entitled, Life. And what it says is, Where is yours headed? And if you open it up on the inside, would you like to know? And it says, we are currently going through a study of the author of life. Come and hear what he has to say about where yours is headed. Every Sunday, 10 a.m., and it's got a map of the church. So I'd like to invite you to do something. We made 5,000 of these, okay? And we made them so that you could give them to your family and friends. So would you mind, at the end of the service, as you're going by the desk, by the table, would you just grab a handful, grab a bunch, put them in your pocket, they're like a business card, and just interact with folks in your world and say, hey, where's your life head? We're going to have a series on the author of life. Would you like to know what he says about your life? And just invite folks, okay? Would you do that? So we want to thank the folks that designed this. They did a great job. I want to begin this message by telling you that I'm indebted to Mark Dever in his book, The Message of the New Testament, He has an outstanding chapter that introduces the book of John, and the structure for my message draws heavily from his material. Now, any introduction to a book should answer the question, why was it written? So this morning, I want to begin with that question. Why was the gospel of John written? And if you'll notice there in your notes, there is an opening scripture, and it's from John 20, verses 30 to 31. Or if you would like, you can turn in your Bibles to John 20, 30 through 31. And here is the purpose statement for the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life In his name. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give me an anointing to preach about you. And that you would give my friends an anointing, an ability to hear and to see that you are the giver of life. That you gave your life so that we might have life in you. Help me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some life-changing introductions that you've had in your life? Well, if you're married, you're probably thinking immediately about when you were introduced to your spouse. For me, that happened in 1984 in Dallas, Texas. I was just coming on staff to a Christian ministry, and it was September of 84, and that ministry was having a blood drive, and I was giving blood, and seated right next to me giving her blood was my dear wife, Desiree. And I introduced myself to her. And that introduction has changed my life forever. As a matter of fact, think about this. That introduction brought four lives into being. 
Yes, I have four children. My daughter was playing the piano. My other daughter was singing. My son was playing the drums. And my other daughter, you'll see later on, out at the book table. So four lives came from that introduction. Life came from that introduction. There was another introduction that brought life to me. This was now in September of 1994. I was pastoring a church in the northern suburbs of Atlanta, a place called Woodstock, Georgia. And a man named Larry Malament who at that time was with a ministry called People of Destiny International. Today that ministry is called Sovereign Grace Ministries. Knocked on the door of my office and said, hey, we're planting a church in Marietta, just south of Woodstock. And from that introduction, I, a year later, found myself joining Sovereign Grace Ministries as a pastor in Orlando first. And then in 1997, I was sent here to plant Palm Vista Community Church, and life has come from that introduction. Life in my marriage, life in my parenting, your life. Some of you have come to know Jesus because of the planting of Palm Vista. God's the primary agent, but the secondary agent would be this church preaching the gospel. Life has come. But you know what? I've got an introduction for you today that's greater than all those introductions. I want to introduce you to someone, the Apostle John who's going to introduce us to someone who's far greater than any of those introductions because the life that he brings is eternal life. It's the life of God. And I want to introduce you to John. And I want to introduce you to what he says about Jesus. But before I do that, I want to make you aware of something. John is going to talk to us about Jesus. And as he does, we have to ask ourselves three questions. They're in your notes. Question number one, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? Question number two, how do I live in light of this truth? And question number three, what in me needs to change in light of this truth? Friends, the gospel of John, it's pivotal to you understanding your Bible. So the primary purpose of preaching on the gospel of John is that you might know Jesus because Jesus has life. But, but a secondary purpose is that you might know how to read your Bible. Because Jesus is right in the middle of history. All of history centers around Jesus. I agree with D.A. Carson in the quote that you find in your notes when he says the following, Rightly done. Preaching from the Gospels enables a congregation to put its Bible together. I want you to put your Bible together. 2009 is going to be the year of the Bible, folks. Okay? Enables a congregation to put its Bible together and then to find the Bible's deepest and most transforming application emerging from this vision. Church, we want to read John to see Jesus. Let me say that again. We want to read John to see Jesus. And that vision will transform us. It will move us. Are some of you dry and distant from God? Is is your vision dim? Is your heart dry? Let's go. Let's go look at Jesus. He will revive your vision. He will warm your heart. He will give you joy. And come with me now as we join the Apostle John seated in the city of Ephesus at the end of the first century, probably around 85 A.D., seated writing his gospel. Ephesus is in former Turkey. 
He's writing a gospel probably with a joyous heart but a heavy heart because, you see, his own brother had been killed because of Jesus probably some 50 years earlier. And his good friends, Paul and Peter, had been martyred, killed for their faith probably some 20 years earlier. Tradition has it that that Paul was beheaded just outside of Rome on the Ostian Way in 67 AD. And, And Peter was crucified upside down in Rome around 67 AD. So John is writing about Jesus for whom his friends have died, Jesus for whom he has suffered. But he's writing with a particular purpose. He's writing that you and I might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God himself, and that knowing and believing that, we would have life in his name. You see, John is the fourth gospel. It's the last one written, and it's very different from the first three. Did you know that in the gospel of John, there are no parables? There are no exorcisms? And there are few healings. Why? Because John was writing with a specific purpose. He wanted to reveal Jesus. So the bulk of John, well, the bulk of John is primarily these signs. There are seven of them we're going to study that point to Jesus. As a matter of fact, you have in your notes an outline. John can be broken up into four sections. Next week, Corey is going to preach the first section. It's called the prologue or the introduction. It's like a a preface to a play or a book. And in this prologue, John is very, very, very anxious to describe Jesus as the word, the incarnate word, God in the flesh. It's interesting. John wants to paint Jesus with this broad, historical, panoramic view. You see, the other Gospels, they begin with Bethlehem. You're going to find next week that John begins with the bosom of the Father. Luke Luke dates his narrative by Roman emperors and Jewish high priests. John, you know how he dates his book? In the beginning. Matthew and Luke, they take us to the cradle and the manger. Mark, he takes us to prophecies of old. But John, John takes us back to the very cradle of eternity. Why? Let me tell you why. Because John is interested in highlighting Jesus, the center of all history. Jesus, God come in the flesh. Jesus, the eternal son. That's the first section. The second largest section of John are the signs of the Messiah. Remember in John 20, 31, we'll look at it quickly. John 20, 31, what did it say there? It says that you might know, that you might read these things, that you might know. And that these things in John 31, but these things are written. These things, these things are the seven signs that John chapter 1 verse 19 through chapter 12 verse 50 talk about. So the these things that we're to know that then enable us to believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and then believing we might have life, these things are the signs. So we're going to talk about the signs and spend the bulk of our time there. And then finally, John ends with a, an epilogue. Basically, an epilogue is just the final, kind of like the ending. And this epilogue, really, it's an interesting narrative of what Jesus does after his resurrection, his interaction primarily with Peter and John. But I believe this epilogue talks to us about what it means to love God and serve him. So here's the question. Here's the propositional statement. Here is the theme of today's message and the theme of the book. 
The question for you today is this. Will you, will you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and receive life in his name? Will you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and receive life in his name? My friend, Jesus Christ is the center of history. He's the center of redemptive history. Is he the center of your history? Is he the center of your reality? Is he the hope of your eternity? That's God's burden for you today. So, here's the question we need to ask ourselves. What should I believe? What should I believe about Jesus? And what should I believe about what he came to do? So, let us, let us go there right now. Let us ask ourselves, what should we believe about Jesus and what should we believe about what he came to do? You know, it's important what you believe about Jesus. Something something you're going to find when you read the, the Gospel of John is this. People got really mad at Jesus. I mean, if you like conflict and in-your-face uh, situations, you're going to love the Gospel of John. I mean, all through John, by the way, John... John is different in the other Gospels. John, you get Jesus in the first person. John has a lot of Jesus talking about himself to others. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And mad people will get furious at Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to stone him. They want to throw him out. Why? Why? Well, the answer is that he declared himself to be Christ, Messiah, the unique son of God, not a son of God, the unique son of God. He declared himself to be God in the flesh, and they didn't like that. And you know what? Today, people don't like that. See, people will take a Jesus that is meek and mild. They'll take a Jesus on their terms, sort of a disconnected, long-haired, philosophical, professorial, kind of nice teacher, nice guy, the first environmentally friendly deity, small d, They'll put him up on with all his other little, their little deities. But when you say, and Jesus says, that I am God, and that there's no other way to God the Father than through God the Son, people get mad. People get mad. You see, our culture's pluralistic belief in the equality of all religions does not stand with the Jesus of the Bible. Let me give you an illustration. Tuesday night, February 17th of this year, a forum entitled Jesus, Buddha, Mohammed, who cares, was held at the University of Miami. It was sponsored by Campus Crusade for Christ. The forum was designed to survey the religions of Jesus, Buddha, and Mohammed to see what truth claims each one makes and then to expose the false statements that religious pluralism makes in claiming that all religions are equal. And then to examine the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Our very own Jason Stubblefield was serving at the event and he recounted for me what happened during the question and answer time. So I asked him to please write down a brief recounting of that. I think it will help you understand what I'm talking about. The events, uh, the, the keynote speaker at this event was a Christian philosophy professor from Palm Beach Atlantic University. He engaged the multi-religious crowd, probably about 200 or so folks, for about 40 minutes on the topic of, of this, the, the religions. And then he entertained any questions the students had for the remaining 20 minutes. From this time of question and answers came thoughtful, 
challenging, and crafty questions regarding the truth claims of Christianity. One such question came from the president of the UM Muslim Student Society. Listen carefully. Very instructive. Quoting the student. On behalf of the Muslim Student Society, thank you, professor, for coming here tonight and teaching about Jesus. We as Muslims also love and believe in Jesus and agree with you on many of the things you said about him tonight. That being said, my question for you is this. Why is it that Muslims can express great love for Jesus, yet Christians do not have the same love for Muhammad? His premise is false. They do not believe and love the Jesus of the Bible. They do not believe Jesus is God come in the flesh. The premise is false, but it's crafty. Very, very crafty. How about you today? Is the Jesus you claim to believe in and love the Jesus of the Bible? Come, let me introduce you to him. And let's find out what he came to do. Who he is, because it really does matter. Look in your notes there. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Listen to a few of the witnesses assembled by John. First, his own witness. John the Baptist said, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Andrew, one of the early apostles, said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Nathaniel, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Listen to Jesus and what he says about himself being equal to God, the unique Son of God. Jesus, in John 5, 25 and 26, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Father has life in himself. That means that no one gives God the Father life. He alone is self-sufficient. And then Jesus states that the Father grants the Son life in himself like the Father, making himself equal with the Father. Folks, Jesus has life that no one needs to give him, that is self-sustaining, self-sufficient. And that makes him different from us. You understand that? We can take your life. No one can take Jesus' life. Indestructible life, like God the Father. Look what Jesus says in John 10, 30-33 there in your notes. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I mean, this is an action gospel. They're ready to kill Jesus. And Jesus answered them. I love, does Jesus have courage or what? (laughs) He knows why they're trying to kill him. I and the Father are one. I mean, he's a Jew living in a strictly monotheistic world. So he's saying, there's actually two gods, God and me. Get the rocks! I can see some of you guys, Marcos Gonzalez, get the rocks, we're going to get them. John Pernas, come on. He's Hialeah boys. We'll show him. There's only one God. Can you imagine the courage goes, uh, why do you want to kill me? <laughs> he knew why he wanted to kill him. What courage Jesus had. Ah. So Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. Those are the seven signs that we're going to be studying. Those good works, healing people, little things like raising the dead, you know, stuff like that. Feeding 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Little things like that. So Jesus says, hey, 
hey, for which one of those things are you going to stone me? And they said, oh, it's not for the good works that we're going to kill you, man. No, 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 no. But for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. They knew what Jesus was saying. Look at John 14, 6 through 7. Jesus said to them, to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? Hey, you've seen me? You've seen God the Father. In case you're wondering, that's a claim to being God. Now listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. You cannot say Jesus was a good teacher and a good man. You can't. It's logically wrong. Because making that statement, Jesus is either a bold-faced liar. He's running a scam. He knows he's not God, but he's going to go ahead and do it. Or he's a crazy man. He's a lunatic. He thinks he's God. There's a lot of those around here, right? (laughs) I'm God. Or he's Lord. Don't come with the nice guy, good teacher, environmentally correct, you know, moral helper of your soul. Doesn't exist, pal. Eject it. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And if he's the Lord, what are you going to do? What does it mean to believe in him and love him? We're going to get to that in a moment. B. So Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He's Christ. Why did he come? Jesus came into the world to glorify the father by giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. John the Baptist says this when he sees Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No time to get into this. But this is the rich, this is the rich typology, the rich metaphor, the stuff that makes you wake up in the morning. That God provided a lamb to be sacrificed for his people when they were being uh, delivered from Egypt. It was called the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And Jesus says, 1,400 years later, I'm that lamb. That lamb was a picture of me. I will take all of your sins. Remember that day in Egypt, the firstborn of everybody died unless you had the blood of that lamb on your doorpost. Jesus says, I'm going to take your sins. Okay? That's what he says in in John 3, 14, right underneath there. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here, friends, is the exciting part of the Gospel of John. Get fired up for this, man. You're going to learn how to read your Bible here. Because you're going to understand what in the world was Moses doing in, in Numbers 21, Lifting up a bronze serpent. When there was a bunch of Israelites who were dying of poisonous serpent bites because they rebelled against God. What was that all about? Ah, Jesus is going to explain to us our Bibles. Because just like the Israelites in 1400 BC had to look at a bronze servant lifted up on a rod because of of being bitten by poisonous snakes because of their rebellion. So now, today, God lifts up his son, not on a rod, but on a cross. And men and women who have been bitten with the poison of sin and a sin nature look up to him and say, save me. And he saves us. The Bible's exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice, folks. That's what this means. And let me tell you something. How did Jesus glorify God the Father? I'll tell you how he did. 
He glorified the Father by dying on the cross. He glorified the Father by dying on a cross. He came to glorify the Father. Oh yes, that's what John 17.1 says there in your notes. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And what is the hour he was talking about? It was the cross. It is at the cross that Jesus is glorified. And it is at the cross where Jesus glorifies the Father by affecting his merciful salvation for sinners like us. John 12, 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He was talking about the cross, the horrible cross. No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Oh, friend, listen to me. If our purpose is to follow Jesus and he glorified the Father on the cross, could it be that he's calling you to glorify God through your cross, through your suffering? Instead of saying, Why, God? Say, thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. First Jesus, and now mine. Mine's nothing compared to his. But we're suffering. We all suffer. But oh, your suffering is sanctified and brought value because there is where you're going to glorify God. Because there is where Jesus glorified his Father. Oh, what rich theology. What practical theology. What life-saving theology. Instead of being embittered by life's difficulties, we take them and glorify our Father because that's what Jesus did. Thank you, John, for introducing us to Jesus. Here's the question. Here's what you should believe about Jesus and what he came to do. Why should you believe it? Oh, that's easy. Friends, you should believe it because of the signs that he performed. Now, I've listed for you the signs there. You have them. We're going to be teaching on these signs for the bulk of our message in the Gospels, Gospel of John. What glorious detail they provide to us of Jesus. They, they are witnesses to Jesus. But here's something that's more important. It's not more important. But in a sense, it's more important. Because no one here would deny the signs. But here's my question for you, and it's in your notes. What, believe, what does believing mean? What what does it mean to believe? Because the signs, we know that from from John 20, 31, but these things are written, that these things are the signs that we're going to be studying, the seven signs. These things are in that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. Great. So what is believing, Al? Is it what the Muslim students say? I believe in Jesus. Is loving Jesus what the Muslim students say? I love Jesus. No, it's not. He doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't. And I want scripture to tell you why. And maybe you don't either. And I want scripture to tell you why. Because John, John in his writings, 
what's called the Johannine literature, just stuff that John has written. It's not only the Gospel of John, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Lord gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was a prophecy. And do you know what John's, one of John's main concerns is, particularly in the epistles, the letters of John? John's, John's concern is for you and your faith. Is it real faith? John, if John were here, he'd, be, he'd say, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? I think we do far too little of that today. I think we have an epidemic of easy believism. Come on down, sign a card, pray a prayer, and you're saved, pal. $9.99 down, $9.99 a month forever, and you got heaven, dude. Welcome. And that's a lie. Examine yourself. All right, Al? You just scared me? So how am I supposed to examine myself? Here's what Scripture says. Hey, don't have to worry about me. Just worry about God, what he reveals in this thing. I'm just trying to explain it. You go home and study it. Remember, it's the year of the Bible. So what does believing mean? It means receiving Jesus and his words by God's work in your hearts. That's what it says. When we look at John 1, 11 through 13, very, very clearly, that's what's being said here. It starts off with a negative. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You're going to see that when you read the Gospel of John. They really didn't receive him. But, verse 12, to all who did receive him, listen, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So believing is a God thing. In the John 6, 44, it says, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draw him. Believing is a God thing. It's believing in his name. It's believing in his word. It's holding to his teaching. Very, very important. That's what John 8, 31 says. We must hold to the teaching of Christ. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, you abide in my word. You are truly my disciples. What you believe is important. The word is important. That's why we have to become a church of the word, the year of the Bible. That's not a joke. We need to be more word oriented because that's what it means to believe. It's not believing what I say or even what I preach. Now what I preach is a gift of teaching to help you understand the word, but you go home and open this thing up. You get excited about why Jesus mentioned Moses in the wilderness and said, I've completed that. You understand the big picture, the big story. Next, believing in Jesus is, as Mark Dever would say, to rely completely on his person and trust totally what he teaches you. Rely completely on his person and trust totally what he teaches you. I do not see a chair here, which is great. We don't have any chairs. But if I had a chair here, I would sit on that chair to rely completely on Jesus is to put my full weight on the chair, take my feet off the ground, and if that chair doesn't hold me, I'm going down. That's what believing is. It isn't saying, I think that chair will hold me. No, no, no. It's getting over, sitting in the chair, putting my feet off the ground, and if it doesn't hold me, I will fall. That's believing. That's what, that's what John eleven twenty five through 26 says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you rest your life on it? 
And then it means loving Jesus. Now we're getting down to a very, very important point. It means loving Jesus. That's what believing him means. It means loving him. John 16, 27 says the following. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Ah, so that helps me understand. What does is, what is believing mean? It means loving Jesus, but it means loving Jesus for who he is, not for the creation of my own mind or my own false religion as Islam would do. It means loving Jesus, who he is, not recreating him in my image or how I would like him. And loving Jesus, and now this is where it really becomes helpful, friends. And look at your notes. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus. That reference should be John 14, 21, not 27. You'll see it right below there, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you think you love him because you know what he says? Everybody in John's gospel knows what he said. Do you think you love him, dear friends, because you have an emotional attachment to him? You get a warm fuzzy during worship. A tear trickles down your eye. Do not think that you love him because you know his teaching and affirm that it is true and would even defend it to a skeptical friend or family member. Do not deceive yourself, dear friend. Hear the word of God. Jesus says clearly, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You cannot say you believe in Jesus and live a life, an ongoing life, of direct opposition to his commands. Our churches are filled with people that are trying, and it can't be done. And I'm here to tell you, with all the love in my heart, stop trying. Repent. Run to Jesus, the real Jesus, and bow before him. Bow before him, because remember, he died to save you from your sins. And this sin of idolatry, this sin is blasphemy, this sin of cosmic rebellion against God, of saying you believe in Jesus and not obeying him as a lifestyle. Examine yourself. I pray the fear of God come upon you right now. We must believe all the right things, yes. But when you believe all the right things, it will produce a life of obedience. I'm not saying you don't disobey. Sure, we all disobey. But I'm talking a lifestyle of obedience. I'm talking about people that are, that are stuck in, in chronic disobedience and really aren't repenting. You can't. You don't have life. You have a fake. You feel good. I'm not about making you feel good. I'm about giving you life. I can't give it to you, but I can introduce to you to the one who can. That is the final point here. What you receive from Jesus. Oh, friends, we receive life if we will believe in Jesus. Look at this wonderful scripture, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And may I add, to deceive you. And we want to reveal the thief, the liar, Satan, the world, our own flesh. They come to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Oh, friends, Jesus is the only one that has life in himself. John 1.4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Only Jesus has that life. We read that before in John 5. He's the only one that can give you true life. Jesus is the bread of life. 
That's what it says in John 6, 48 to 50. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. That's another Old Testament reference. Jesus is teaching us how to read our Bibles. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Oh, friend, run from your idols and run to the Lord. Some of you are trying to find life in so many things. You're trying to find life in friends and relationships. You're trying to find life in money and security. You may be trying to find life in whatever you fill in the blank. Oh, friend, leave your idols. There's no life there. They come to kill and to steal and to destroy. They're stealing your soul. They're deceiving your heart. Run from them. Run to the real Jesus and bow before him. He's serious, but he's loving and merciful. He's kind, but he's severe. He will judge sin. God will not play. He won't play church. But he will save you if you bow your knee to Jesus and give you life. Jesus, he has the words of life. I love what Simon Peter said in in John 6, 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is what he said to Lazarus' sister when he, right, as he was about to raise him from the dead. And she's sort of freaking out and her brother's dead. And he says, listen, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And she believed. And you know what he did? He went and raised Lazarus from the dead. I think that's a sign. <laughs> Can you raise someone from the dead? My father died 15 years ago. I miss him. I miss dad. I wish I could have raised him from the dead. I don't have that. Jesus has that. Nothing you're seeking has that. Only God has that. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh. See, Jesus promises us eternal life if we believe. Really believe. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John 17.3 says there in your notes, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Hey, guess where we're back to? Life-changing introductions. So I want you to pursue this life-changing introduction. And again, I'm indebted to Mark Dever for his wonderful treatment of this introduction to John. And these application questions come right from his book. I want you to go to home group on Wednesday night. And if you're a guest, find a good home group and go and visit. I want you to discuss with one another, hey, why did Jesus' contemporaries hate him? I want you to talk about, hey, according to the Gospel of John, whom does Jesus intend to glorify above all others? Now, we know the the answer, but do you know the answer? Do you know where it says that here? Go to home group ready to answer from this. Not just from your head. Now your head needs to know it. Some of your heads are quite empty, so there's plenty of room for this kind of truth. So is mine. (laughs) Mine's bigger than most of yours. Uh, And so, fill it with Scripture. And when you go, talk from Scripture. Not just what I said. Here's one. Question three. Whom do you intend to glorify above all others? And how do you intend to do it? Oh, friends, and then question four. Question four is the question for all of us today. In your life, was this priority, what priority, glorifying God, reflected in the way you lived last week? Would God, who can read your thoughts, agree? This is what it means to believe, dear friends. You cannot say you believe and live a lifestyle of selfish, self-glorying. 
You cannot live a lifestyle of lies and impurity and greed and anger and anxiety and unforgiveness and say you believe in Jesus. You don't. Oh, but you can. But you got to repent. You got to come low and run hard to the very place that is the center of all history. A cross, not a serpent lifted on a stick, but a savior lifted on a cross, writhing in agony, crucified for my lies, my impurity, my selfishness, my egoism, my pride, my unbelief, my anxiety this week. I'll introduce you to him and he'll give you life. And go introduce him to someone else. Just a bunch of beggars telling other beggars where to find some bread. And this bread is the bread of life. So you talk about that on Wednesday. Talk a lot about it. Don't just wait till Wednesday. Talk about it right after church and all week long. And then share it with others on Wednesday. Go witness to all the neighbors in the block. Number five, how does Christ's sacrifice prove, provide for the salvation of sinners? I just spoke about. How does that provide for the salvation of sinners? Look it up in this gospel. Six, when was Jesus glorified in John's gospel and why then? Go read those scriptures and ask why. Lord, show me in scripture. What is this sacrificial lamb? What did, what did John say? Behold the lamb of God. Lord, let me look at my cross references. Oh, Exodus. Wow, I, yeah, Corey preached on that. Come with scripture. Number seven. What does John's gospel mean by believe? Oh, parents, sit down with your teens. Sit down. Singles, sit down together. Adults, sit down together. Say, what does it mean to believe? Do I really believe? Because number eight is going to help you answer that. How have you loved Jesus, practically speaking, during this past month? Have you really loved him with your treasures? Or have you withheld and said, I'll protect myself. I'll provide for myself. Thank you very much. You don't believe. You can't. Or otherwise, this is a lie. And this, my friend, is not a lie. I will die saying this isn't a lie. Because if this is a lie, then let's just all go home. It's not a lie. But sometimes our lives say that it is. When we say, I believe in Jesus, but he doesn't have your treasures. You got them locked up. He doesn't have your time. You barely have a moment for him. And he certainly doesn't have your talents. Oh, but you can repent and run to the cross. Let's bow our heads in prayer.